News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This is my favorite time of year, now for a lot of reasons, but also because it's when I start to read all sorts of best of the year lists. And the best of all of those is the best books of the year lists. Now, Indigo has come out with its list of 2023's best books of the year. We are going to break them down right now with the help of Rania Husseini, who is a senior vice president of print at Indigo, the store where I could literally spend all day long. Rania, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. And I'm so happy to hear you say that about our stores. I I could spend all day there, too. What is it? It's some kind of magic formula. I just get in there and then somebody in my family will be like, well, now we're going to be here for a long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's my favorite place. It really is. And you seem to have uh, an amazing job. So I'm jealous, first of all. How do you (laughs) how do you choose the best books of the year? How does Indigo do this? Well, you know what, it's a, it's a really long process. We start pretty early in the year. So my team is constantly reading, as you can imagine, so that we can pick and uh, display and think about what are the books that we're going to talk about and support. And then as we get closer to the middle of the year, that's when we really start in earnest thinking about what are the best books of the year. And so the entire team, so uh, the book team, but then also all of our home office partners will start to add books to the list. And we go out to all of our booksellers across the country. So imagine 5,000 people get to put in their choices for best of the year and imagine culling down that list. So um, as we go through the process, it's funny to actually have these numbers, but I'll share with you, we got to we reduced the list from many hundreds to 123 that were sort of narrowed down to make the final list. And then we have a long list of 27. And then we have to narrow that down to 10. So um, the debates that happen here <laughs> for the committee is uh, are unbelievable. Honestly, I've, I've thought about filming them and sharing them on TikTok. Oh, yes. <laughs> I would love to see a knockdown, drag out argument over a book <laughs> making it onto this list. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's and it's it's unbelievable just the insights that people have. And what we try to do is actually not just have the book team be part of the conversation. So we have it's open to anybody to join the committee, and so you have such diverse voices that are participating and really choosing the books that we are most passionate about. Well, let's start with one that I am very passionate about, because this would also be on my list of one of the best books of the year. Uh, So if we start at the top of this list, Hello, Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. I mean, there is so much to say about this book. It is, first of all, I I know that Heather said this in her comment, which is an actual comment from her. But after I finished this book, it made me call my sister. So yes, I, yes, <laughs> like yes, right. The feeling that you have that if you're lucky enough to have a sibling, it makes you call your siblings. And you know, I'm not a big crier, and I my team will tell you that it takes a lot to make me cry. This book made me cry. I fell in love with it, and it was just such a joy to read. And it really talks about authenticity. You know, mm-hmm. uh, not just you know, the, the ability to be yourself, but being loved for being yourself. Like, those are really important 
messages for people. And you know what? It's, it's, it's so interesting because this book came out in March. And often we, you know, as the year goes on, we try to actually think about, will this book hold up? And it held up all the way through. Oh, it sure did. I couldn't recommend it enough to anybody. Like, Thank you. Everybody that is, should read this. Rania, <laughs> that is the book I've probably recommended the most this past year. Like looking at my own books that I've listed that I've read for this year. I try to get, I get through like 40, 45 books a year. And I would say this one is probably the one I've recommended the most. But I know there's other ones on the list, so we have to get to that too. So let's just run through the complete list. So starting with Hello Beautiful, yeah. what's the next one? The next one is Fourth Wing. There's not a lot that I need to say about Fourth Wing. If you are at all uh, on TikTok or in book talk or or across all genres it is fun there are dragons you're going to love it i think those are the three things that i would say about it <laughs> um and then the next one is becoming a matriarch i know uh you're in bc so um uh helen Knott is from prophet river first nation it is an absolutely heartwarming book um, it's about losing her mother and her grandmother and just that experience of dealing with the trauma that she has experienced. It's her second book, and I could not recommend this more as a biography uh, for everyone to read. It is a truly, truly an incredible story. Okay, next. And then next is uh, Moon of the Turning Leaves. That's Wab Rice's second, uh, second book. Um, I think it is... Uh, for fans of The Last of Us, but no zombies, more heart. I uh, I really think that people will love, love, love this book. And I know you guys interviewed uh, Michael Finkel, yes. the art thief. That is such a spectacular read. Honestly, for a nonfiction book, and I love nonfiction, but this reads like fiction. It is an unbelievable story for art, art lovers and for true crime lovers and for anyone who just loves a great story. Highly recommend. Okay, and this next one is one that I have on my uh, night table at home. It's the next book I'm going to read after the one that I'm finishing right Yellow now. Face? Yellow Face by R.F. Quang. What is this about? Yellow Face is actually about uh, uh, an, uh, an author who steals a book from um, uh, an Asian author and, and actually takes it as her own. And it is uh, the pretense of trying to keep up with a lie that actually takes you through the entirety of the book. It is a really good read. It, it makes you feel, um, you know, this impending doom throughout the book. And I loved it. Okay. All right. That's, I'm going to get to that one for sure. Now, what about Happy Place by Emily Henry? Happy Place. If you've read Emily Henry, you, you will love this book. It's, uh, you know, uh, another, she's another author who's made it on our top 10 list multiple times. Um, it's, it's a romance novel. It, it is fun. It's exciting. It's, it's something that everybody is going to enjoy as a, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, it's just a, a wonderful read. Yes. A wonderful, fast read. It really is. Okay, so you've got a, some nonfiction on here, too. I know I don't want to get to that, but just to finish the list, you've got The Leftover Women by Jean Cock, which is definitely on my list to read. And, of course, Chris Hadfield's A Defector. Love. I know yes. that's a hugely popular book. But I wanted to very quickly ask you about the nonfiction one you've got on here, which is Life in Two Worlds by Ted Nolan, former NHL coach. This is quite the book. It is quite the book. And you know what? It is not just for, for hockey fans. It is not just for sports fans. This is a story about racism in, in uh, 
um, you know, hockey. And it is a true story about, um, you know, the, the journey of actually dealing with racism. It is, uh, you know, the, the funny thing is, is we have one sports fan on the committee and everybody loved this book because because this sports fan brought it forward. And it is truly a wonderful, wonderful tale. And I think it's it's a must read for anyone who loves hockey and who wants to actually understand the history of Canada. All right. Well, I love it. I think these are great gifts to give out for this time of year. I just love best books of the year list. You'll have to come back, Ronnie, and talk more books with us sometime. Anytime. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for being here. That's Rania Husseini, who's the Senior Vice President of Print at Indigo with their best books of the year for 2023. I love book of the year lists. You can check theirs out at Indigo. Uh, a couple of them on there. I have read a couple of them. I've got sitting at home waiting to be read. And again, I can't say it enough. Hello, beautiful. And Napolitano, great book. Check it out. And you ever want to send some book recommendations my way, please do. You know where to find me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Scott's recovering this morning, as are many people from the activity. I'm still recovering from the activities of Halloween. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm tired today, yeah, just yeah. because it was very busy. We had a lot of kids come to our house, and, and I was I love handing out candy, so I get really amped up, and then by the time I go to bed, I'm exhausted. It's a lot of work <laughs> handing out candy. you got to open fun, the door, though. you got to close the door, you got to reach your hand into oh, the I bucket. Oh, I just kept it open. Out of the bucket? I, bu- just, oh, I just left it open? Well, I had to. You like, have that many kids, yes, eh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I did have couldn't close the door. Okay. That's yeah. impressive. We get zero kids at my house. We're on like a quiet, um, sort of darker street right. in North Van and the houses are kind of farther apart and stuff. So strategically kids never, ever come there. A couple years in a row, one of, one of us stayed home, uh, in case, and we've never gotten any kids. So now we just don't. So we drove up to where my older daughter goes to school and in that neighborhood, it was totally popping off. There were people everywhere. Wow. It was so fun. Lots happened. But I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and we're with the group of friends. And my three-year-old is on the is the low the smallest kid in the group of friends. But they're also the cutest kids. That come. Definitely, the I cutest. had a toddler come to my door yesterday as an avocado. Ah, oh, cutest thing. Yeah, cutest. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. She was a witch. Both of my daughters Adorable. were witches, and I think that Willow, my younger daughter, wanted to go as a witch only because her older sister was also a witch. So they were twin witches. But uh, it, it, this happens inevitably. All, all the older kids are running house to house, you know, yes, and Willow can't keep up. So yeah, about twenty minutes into it, we just totally lost the pack, <laughs> which was fine because, you know, I knew that that was going to happen anyway. And it was also good because she just didn't have the stamina to keep going, you know. So by 7 o'clock, we were making our way back to the car. What would you rate as the best candy? Oh, uh... I've seen you knocking back a couple of Smarties boxes this morning. Had a few Smarties. They go down pretty easy. You kind of open the box and do it like a shooter, but that's only because there's no more coffee crisp in the bowl. I think coffee crisp is number one. I ate one of those this morning. I think, unfortunately, our producer Bianca's eaten one too many this morning just because she's sugared up. Yeah. Hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hard. I know I'm going to crash as well in a little while here, so I just... Yeah, I can't wait to listen to this show an hour from now when that starts to happen. The secret, Simi, is just to keep it going. (laughs) You just got to keep it going. And actually, I discovered this this morning. This is interesting news uh, because I'm concerned about my teeth and of course my kids' teeth and all these things. Dentists are weighing in this morning because today is actually National Brush Day. Oh, of course it is. Right? I mean, that makes sense. Saying that if you are really concerned about your teeth after Halloween, strategically 
the best way to protect your teeth is to eat all of your Halloween candy in one sitting. Yes, That's what I, dentists are I saying. I think your family doctor who checks your blood sugar would probably say differently. Yeah, but that, that this is what the dentists are saying, Simi. They, they acknowledge So they're saying get it all over with so that you're not having a little bit of sugar every yes. day, that you get it all done and then brush it all out and you're That's done. right. Yeah, you get it over in one sitting and like once your teeth are coated in sugar, that's it. You know, finish it all up, brush it off. And that as opposed to this like gradual exposure over months and months and months, they also say that certain candies are better than others. I found this interesting chocolate is far better for your teeth than anything that kind of gets sticky or stuck in there because chocolate melts and then just sort of washes away with saliva. But like a hard candy or like a taffy or those things are terrible. That's funny because I actually handed out 80% candy, not chocolate yesterday. And and kids were loving it. They were like, oh, they wanted the sours because I had a lot of the sours and all that kind of stuff. And they were, and had the little Haribo uh, gummy bears, bears, like little packages of that, all that kind of stuff. They loved, oh, great candy. They were going crazy for it. and I, I like that too. I'm more a candy person than a chocolate person because you get a variance of flavors. Chocolate is kind of just chocolate. It's good once in a while. No. But, uh, you know, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. You know, <laughs> destroy the teeth, destroy the, the health, the blood sugar, all of it. You know? So the advice from Dr. Schatz today is, the dentist, Dr. Schatz, is eat it all and get it over Just with. Just get it over with in, in one fell swoop. And also, I've, no one's ever referred to me as doctor before, well, Simi. because you're not, nice. actually. <laughs> what what are the rules in your house, though, so for your kids? And a lot of parents probably have rules yeah. about this. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to see any videos on social media of parents, like, you know, messing with their kids. I and know, the kids. I don't That's like that awful, either. Awful. Yeah, I don't like what that either. What are the rules at your house? So we normally would say, like, one, one to two pieces a day. I think, you know, once it'll be, like, one piece in... in school lunches and then maybe one piece when they get home. So I think that's where we're going to land on the candy thing. We haven't had a lot of time to discuss, but they all, I also know that they're going to sneak it. They always do. Oh, so. and so do I. But the parents yeah. do too, right? And, yes. And that way the kids hopefully won't notice that the pile is diminishing faster than it would have if the parents weren't. So you're doing your kids a favor. See, I frankly. went through last night before they had, like they got home and before they had a chance to go through and sort of quantify how much they had, I took the candy tax, the dad tax nice. last night. So nice. they'll be none the wiser. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Thank you for that, Scott. You got it. See, that's how Scott divvies up the candy at his house. How do you do it at yours? What are the rules for the kids? Out there, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Vaughn, have you had any chocolate this morning? Uh, no, uh, it's been tough, though. I've had to resist. Uh, Simi, next year, if you have too many kids in your neighborhood, send them over to our place. Why? They just need a ferry reservation and make sure <laughs> the ferry doesn't break down. We had this used to be a, a destination neighborhood, our neighborhood in Victoria. Um, three dozen children last night. That's not bad. Not many. That's not bad, though. And lots of candy left over. So I think I'm going to have to take a basket into the press gallery and let my colleagues there ruin their teeth uh, and so forth. <laughs> well, that's a shame. They're really... But you know, Simi, if the dentists are saying eat as much as you yeah. can in one day, like, I'm not sure we really should listen to the dentists on the issue of when to eat candy. I, I, I think there might be other medical professionals who have less of a conflict of interest on this issue. 
<laughs> well, I have to go to the dentist today, as a matter of fact, so I will ask them about that. I don't know why. I would, you would think they would close the offices the day after Halloween, but apparently not. <laughs> well, so. make sure they declare a conflict is all I'm saying. All right. I will ask them about that. Uh, let's talk about this carbon tax situation. It is the story that just keeps going, and I know the federal government has really dug itself a hole on this. We're, oh, yeah. We are going to speak with Josie Osborne, BC's energy minister, coming up later this morning because they're really on the hot seat here, too. Yeah, so, you know, the trick for opposition parties, they always worry they don't get enough publicity, and often they have a point, but, you know, they're the opposition, they're not in government. The thing is to be ready to strike when the iron is hot and the opportunity is there, and the federal liberal government created an incredible opening for governments and political parties across the country with the incredibly cynical flip-flop on the carbon tax. The Liberals are in political trouble in Atlantic Canada, so they handed out a giant tax break on the carbon tax to Atlantic Canada, mostly. That's where it goes. And, you know, as soon as they did it, observers went, wait a minute, you've been telling us we got to do this to save the planet, and then anybody who doesn't support the carbon tax is a terrible climate denier, and you can't do it, and now you've done it, of course, everyone's jumping on the bandwagon. Um, it's interesting you're going to have the New Democrats on, the BC New Democrats. They were very critical of Ottawa for doing this. They're on the hot seat as well. And what we saw yesterday, Simi, is uh, the BC United opposition was ready for this. And there's a lot of things that have happened they haven't been ready for, so give them credit on this one. And they came out yesterday with a response to what Ottawa did on home heating oil and a package of tax breaks that will be a plank in BC United's election platform next year. Okay. And this is, they're obviously very serious. They're talking about this as for an election, which is still like about a year away here. Yep. Uh, and it's so interesting about this though, because this is the party that originally brought in BC's carbon tax. Yeah, so uh, we can do hypocrisy trading on this one. Um, the BC Liberals brought in the carbon tax back when it was the only one in Canada. They took a lot of political heat for it. They fought an election against the New Democrats who posed the tax. The Liberals won the election, and ever since, BC Liberals, now BC United, have been saying, hey, we're really proud on this issue, we pioneered the country's first carbon tax, uh, got a lot of favorable publicity, and we, you know, defend the tax. So, of course, yesterday, when the Liberals, uh, now BC United, announced that they were changing the tax, or that they would change the tax if they got into government, the New Democrats, yes, uh, came back and said, hey, uh, you guys have lost your conviction on this. And BC United fired back, who are you to accuse anybody of hypocrisy on this tax? You've campaigned against it and then got into government and changed it. So, you know, both sides are pointing fingers at each other. That sort of goes on all the time. But the, the real thing that happened in the legislature in question period now, Monday and Tuesday, is Trudeau's cynicism has opened up the debate about carbon taxation in British yes. Columbia that we've not seen in 15 years. The parties that were represented in the legislature 
from 2009 onward, because the NDP changed their position, uh, have generally supported carbon taxation. Uh, BC Liberals did, uh, BC Mm -hmm. United, when they became that, uh, NDP, after you know losing the election in 2009, supported carbon taxation, and of course the Greens did. Uh, two things have happened. One is, as I say, Justin Trudeau's cynicism, which has opened up the debate right across the country. And of course, the other thing is official recognition of the BC Conservative semi. And they say, if you want release, relief from carbon taxation, vote for us, because if we win the election... Wow. We're like Pierre Polyev. We'll just get rid of it. Okay. Talking about the the impact, kind of the ripple effects of this one seemingly random decision that the Trudeau Liberal government made in Ottawa that is having all of this impact here in BC in provincial politics. Uh, Vaughn, now we're talking the Conservatives are getting in on this. Yeah. So the Conservatives jumped in on this. I mean, what really happened, this was... What the immediate reaction when Trudeau did it last week was you realize you're going to open up a debate right across the country. You've given a tax break to one part of the country, the Atlantic provinces, and another one to the eastern provinces. So one is relief from the carbon tax on home heating oil, and the other is new incentives to switch to heat pumps. Reaction was, listen, you're <laughs> you're going to open up a debate right across the country. Every other province is going to have say, well, we want relief too, and every other group is going to say, well, we're needy as well. Um, you know, Simi, there's one quote that ought to be enshrined as the possible quote of the year, and that was the federal minister for rural development who, when asked about this, said, "Our federal liberal members in Atlantic." Canada put a lot of pressure on us to make this change. If people out west are unhappy, <clears throat> maybe they should elect more liberals. Oh, I couldn't believe that. I was like, who says that? Who I does love that? It. You know the old definition of a gaffe? Eh? Yes. That's where a politician accidentally tells the truth. Let's see this as just naked vote grabbing. Ridiculous. And it isn't surprising that the other parties, including the parties here in BC, are jumping on the bandwagon. I mean, you got Josie Osborne a bit. She's going to talk about the NDP government position, but they're under pressure too. You know, if we're going to get into cynical vote buying, what are you going to do for British Columbians that heat their home with oil or natural gas? I mean, <laughs> a tax break for home heating oil. Simi, is exactly the opposite exactly. of what climate action is supposed to be because you're not offering it for natural gas, which burns cleaner. This is the part that I have so much trouble wrapping my head around, is that if, you're, if we're all about, you know, working towards this climate action plan, why are you then offering to help the people who burn the worst kind of fuel? Yeah. Doesn't well, make any because, sense. Because our members in the Atlantic provinces demanded it And if you don't like it in your part of the world, elect more liberals and we'll listen to political pressure from your members members as well. I mean, there are there's cynicism in politics and then there's world class cynicism. And this is it. So, you know, what does it mean here in British Columbia? Well, right now, I would say the situation is fluid. The New Democrats are saying uh, we still support carbon taxation and the only kind of relief we're going to offer is uh, we're going to offer 
credits and reductions to the truly needy, the low income and so forth. Um, they're also saying they want the same deal on heat pumps as the Atlantic province has got because BC already has incentives. They yeah. want the federal government to offer the incentives out here. Uh, BC United is saying, hey, uh, look, this is an opening for us to talk about changing some aspects of the carbon tax, not all of them, to give relief to people on home heating oil and home heating fuel, so propane and natural gas as well. And that's a a plausible position if we're going to go down that road. And the BC Conservatives have jumped in, and as you say, Simi, and they've said, um, you know, like carbon taxing, vote for us. We're going to get rid of it. So that would blow a $3 billion hole in the provincial budget. But, you know, the Conservatives say, well, you know, wait for our platform, and we're going to cut spending and all that. They haven't. Election's still a year away, and they're a new party officially, so it's going to take them a while. But it's, it's fascinating, incredible how this single act of cynicism by a desperate, hypocritical prime minister, you can quote me on that, this single act of cynicism has opened up a debate in a province where the consensus on carbon taxation held for almost 15 years. It almost now has turned into the modern day equivalent of the Portman Bridge debate of 2017, right? Oh, you're, you're yeah. going to do that to it? We're going to get rid of it completely. Well, that's... Yeah. No, <laughs> and you're right, Simi, and that was a masterstroke yes. by the New Democrats on the eve of that election. It changed the whole debate, and the New Democrats will be first to tell you that... Kevin Falcon is the guy who put the tolls on the port man and defended them and said they were a good idea. He was supported, you know, on that one by the government that he'd been a part of. But, uh, yeah, we're into this area where, look, uh, there's all kinds of political issues out there. But at a time, Simi, where people are acutely aware of the rising cost of living and inflation. They know it every time they go into a grocery store when people are finding it even harder to buy homes because interest rates are higher and prices are higher at the same time. Of course, they are worried about the impact of taxes on the family budget, people who budget, and they're going, wait a minute, like how much am I actually paying in carbon taxes? Because, of course, you pay it at the pump for gasoline, but you also pay it built into the cost of all the goods that get delivered to you. It ripples through the economy. And because climate change is a global force driven by places that aren't going nearly as far as we are in trying to reduce emissions, we haven't even seen many results from it. Uh, you, we could shut down our whole BC economy and what, China and India would add the emissions, you know, in a few weeks. It, what's fascinating to me about this as political watchers like we are, Vaughn, is to how, see how this federal government did this. And it, it, you see this happen throughout history, right, where it seems like a dying government or a government on its last legs, this act of desperation happens. And years later, they'll look back and go, what were we thinking? Yeah, like what do we do? You know, an awful lot of the problems that cost government power are the decisions you make in when desperation. You, yes, when you get arrogant and powerful in government, and you start flailing, and you make stupid decisions and compound exactly. them with more stupid decisions, and the next thing you know, you're sitting there in the opposition benches going. As you say, Simi, what were we thinking? Of? Exactly. And I feel like this is going to be one of those moments. Avon, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. 
This is Mornings with Simi. This morning, we're going to talk about illegal dumping. It is the worst. I know some neighborhoods have a real problem with this. Our Scott Chance has been looking into it and joins us this morning. Hi, Scott. Hi, how's it going? Good, thank you. This is terrible. When this happens uh, in your neighborhood, it just drives people crazy. Can you? Will you admit to ever having done it, Simi? No, I, I, and I haven't. I can, and I can say that in all honesty. Who would do that? The guilt that I would yeah. feel, Scott, would keep me up at night. Yeah, I don't know. I know, like, I can relate to it, and I think I will admit to having done it at times because. Most, you're giving me this look of like, how dare you? But I my think, look of disgust right now is so great. But uh, what, what, like, I've done it in the. I don't just like throw it in the alley, but it's you know you've got a bunch of things and you can't fit it all in your garbage can, and maybe you're in a rush and you just think like, oh, I'll just drop it in the workplace dumpster, or I'll go down the alleyway and there's a dumpster open and I'll just throw it in there, and that's no problem. Like you all kind of think that, but it is a problem because you're not paying to have that garbage removed, someone else is, and now you're taking up their allotment of garbage and then they end up paying more. Okay, so this is actually a different type of illegal dumping. I thought you were talking about just dumping it somewhere. Well, I mean, that qualifies as illegal dumping too. I would never do that. Well, that's I would what, never that's what do I that. Thought. Why do you think I was looking at you like that? So I <laughs> thought you meant like going into a neighborhood and just dumping it anywhere. No, I mean, that qualifies as illegal dumping, but this, like this is an issue too, and specifically in Richmond, like a lot of business owners there are getting really upset because garbage collection costs a lot of money, yes. right? And so people go into these alleys and say maybe they have like a bunch of drywall, you know, like you're not supposed to put drywall in your in your garbage can and uh, they'll just throw it into these dumpsters and now that business has to deal with it. They get fined for having that in there or they, you know, have to pay to have it removed or whatever, or maybe it fills up their bin and then people just leave stuff beside the bin. And so there's a whole spectrum of it, but it's happening particularly in Richmond. And because of this spectrum, Simi, I actually asked Christina Nishi. She's the manager of recycling and waste recovery for the city of Richmond to like, just give me her definition of what actually qualifies as illegal dumping. So illegal dumping, it's definitely not a Richmond specific issue. So unfortunately, the entire Metro Vancouver region is struggling with this as well. Um, And illegal dumping is when items are unlawfully disposed of in public property or in private commercial garbage and recycling bins. Um, yeah. Yeah, like I think we see the the commercial recycling bins one all the time. I mean, I think we see both of this all the time and everybody has mm-hmm. some some version of this. But in in Richmond is the issue more just like um like large scale littering or is it because I know a lot of people that do this they think, "Oh, I'm not littering. I'm just going to drive down this alley and find a dumpster that's open and maybe it's owned by, you know, a private business or um I don't know, a government uh, strata building or whatever." And they throw their garbage in there and they think, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not littering. It's going in the garbage, but it's going in someone else's garbage. And that causes a lot of issues, right? For sure. Yeah. So all of these commercial businesses, they have to pay for their garbage and recycling service. So they're having to pay for the items that are being unlawfully disposed of in their bins. Also, we often see that the most common items are items that really shouldn't be going in general household garbage. So um, items like furniture or hazardous waste. So all of that needs to be handled completely separate than in your general like garbage bin. Right. And then well, I guess when the commercial organization or wh- whoever's dumpster it is, they go to get it uh, emptied and they're ending up getting fines or having to have someone sort through it. And it just becomes this whole process. And I'm assuming that that's why people do it is they don't want to deal with that themselves. So they're kind of just passing that on to whoever's unfortunate enough to have an open
open dumpster. Yeah, generally it it boils down to two things for illegal dumping. So the main things are cost and convenience. Um, So it may be costly to dispose of the item or they might not know where to take it. Facility might be too far away. Um, So at the city, we're trying to mitigate each of those. So we have the Richmond Recycling Depot, which offers free recycling for residents. If it is one of the items that we don't accept, we also have something called the $5 garbage disposal voucher um, for a resident. So this holds a $25 value at the Vancouver landfill, which can help cover the cost of Uh, say, disposing of a mattress, for example, which is another commonly seen um, illegally dumped item. Explain that to me, that $5 voucher. So you pay $5 and you get to dump $25? Exactly, yeah. If you're a Richmond resident, you can visit any of our city facilities or the Richmond Recycling Depot. Um, You pay $5, you get a little garbage disposal voucher, you take it to the Vancouver landfill, and it covers the cost of $25 of disposing. So generally that does cover dis- um, a mattress or we, we say about one cubic yard. But I think it's it's like what you're talking about. It's cost, but even less than cost. It's like the convenience thing of having to drive somewhere and wait in line and, and all of that. But I think it, it kind of boils down, at least in my mind, to like being a responsible citizen. You know, like you, we all agree to like have mattresses and sleep on them. And part of that is also acknowledging that when it's time to get a new one, you have to do the the right thing and like get, get rid of the old one. What do you think it is that we need to do to get people to start thinking differently? Like how can we change people's attitudes or change people's minds and get them to start taking responsibility for their own stuff instead of just throwing it into someone else's dumpster and letting someone else have to deal with it? For sure. Scott, I think it's having these types of conversations and letting the public know that there is a huge financial impact to businesses in the city when we're having to deal with these items that are illegally dumped. Um, Like for the region in general, uh, it's about $3.4 million to respond to illegal dumping on public property alone. Um, In Richmond, we're on the lower end of the scales, or it's about seventy to 80000 annually. Um, But it's really working. It's behavior change at this point. So like you mentioned, people are completely fine purchasing and paying a lot of money for new items, but when it comes to have to pay to dispose of these items, that's something that we haven't quite um, figured out in our in our brains yet. Um, so it's it's working with the public, it's uh, education campaigns, awareness campaigns, letting them know that this isn't permitted, um, and making sure that they know where they can safely dispose or um, drop off items for recycling. Like there might be something right around the corner from you that you've just never had to think about or taken another look at. Um, actually, in Richmond, we have we have an app for that. Oh, so cool. it's called the, the Richmond Recycling app. So it has a recycling wizard uh, where you can type in what you're trying to dispose of, and then it provides a list of the closest facilities based on your location. I think a lot of people sort of misunderstand how how much progress we've made in terms of uh, recycling and these recycling centers. You know, it's not just like pop cans and, you know, uh, donating old clothes and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, there's like we're consistently looking for new opportunities to accept new items at the recycling depot. Like we take motor oil, tires. Uh, electronics. So it's way beyond what we think of recycling, just like you said, the pop bottles, cans, cardboard. Um, So yeah, I would encourage everybody to take a look at facilities that are around them. There's quite a few out out there. um, And we have, I know a lot of other municipalities have 
similar app. So depending on where you are in the region, there's there's some resources that can help you out there. You're not alone. That's Christina Nishi. She's the manager of recycling and waste recovery for the city of Richmond. A lot of businesses there having issues with people throwing stuff in their alleys, in their dumpsters, and uh, that's got to stop. It's not cool. It's not cool. And I wonder, what is this thing with garbage? And Have you ever been to Japan? Uh, no. Garbage is a very serious thing in Japan. There are no public uh, garbage containers okay. when you walk around in Tokyo. Really? Because it is a pack it in, pack it out. You, If, you're, if it's right. your garbage, you take it home and dispose of it properly and everything is spotless. That, like, how do we train that I don't into know. people? Like, I that's was, the question. Yes. Like, here we have these garbage bins and, and like, garbage cans them. on every, and there's still garbage all over the Listen, street. If I, you should have seen it. You saw it this morning yeah, coming into work, awful, right? Awful. awful. Garbage everywhere. What happens to people? Totally. And the garbage can is right there. there. Just take responsibility for yourself, okay, okay, people? That is Scott and myself ranting this morning. (laughs) If you would like to weigh in on your constructive thoughts on that, what can we do about it? How do we change people's mentality? You tell us, simi at cknw.com. Thank you for that, Scott. You got it. This is Mornings with Simi. Wildlife conservation isn't just for the cute and the cuddly. We've also got to protect the microscopic and the creepy crawly. A research team at Vancouver Island University is focused in on understanding some unique itty-bitty parasites that make their home inside the Vancouver Island marmot. Mac Barrera, a lab tech working on Quadra Island, is among these researchers, and I caught up with him to get the skinny on the little creepy crawlies. We wanted to look at, so for context, Jamie, who is my supervisor, uh, has been working on research involving the marmots for, for years now. But for, for my project, as well as uh, some related ones, we really wanted to focus in on, uh, on the parasites of, uh, of the marmots here on Vancouver Island. They're, they're not exactly as charismatic as the marmots themselves, but they're, in a lot of ways, they're a pretty untapped sort of route of inquiry. And so what, what we tried to do was basically just to isolate these parasites from uh, the marmots on Vancouver Island and then use genetic sequencing to compare them to parasites from other marmots or, or other species on the mainland. And basically what we found is that the marmot has at least one unique parasite that exists nowhere else and another one that, that is potentially unique enough to be called a species as well. So it's kind of new information for us and, and really at the end of the day, it's really just the most important takeaway is to highlight how much biodiversity would be lost. Uh, if we were to lose the marmot. It's an extension of, of kind of the ecosystem uh, influence that the marmot holds. Okay, certainly. So it's not just the Vancouver Island marmot that is endemic to the area. It is their, the parasites that they carry with them as well. Exactly, yeah. There's at least two that are, that are pretty unique here and, and maybe even more. When we're trying to think about conservation of, of a charismatic species like the marmot, there are also, in this case, kind of synergistic effects of, of preserving its, its unique parasites, which, which are valuable biodiversity as well. I had to ask Mac how he got involved in the subject of Vancouver Island marmot parasites to begin with. I just kind of got interested in uh, the power of genetics as a tool to uh, teach us about wildlife. Uh, and I started with interest in more kind of, you know, large macro animals like marmots and, and other things that we see walking around. But actually, to be honest, I mean, the, the opportunity to work on this project on the parasites just kind of presented itself. And I, I for one, didn't really appreciate how spectacular and, uh, and interesting these little creatures can be until I, I kind of uh, took this project on. But, I mean, I think it's just one example, like I say, of uh, all the different 
you know, cute, cuddly, and creepy crawly critters that we that we share our backyard with. This project came about as a, an undergraduate research opportunity while I was doing my bachelor's at VIU. For for those who aren't aware, especially on Vancouver Island, but also on the mainland, like there there is some pretty awesome research being done into our our own backyard right here. And, and for anybody who is maybe aspiring to be a researcher and and you know has some specific ideas about what that looks like. I mean, it's, I've, I've honestly been quite surprised and uh, appreciative of, of the opportunities we have right here to do to do work in our own backyard. Vancouver Island is considered a biodiversity hotspot within the already remarkably biodiverse province of British Columbia. So research into even the tiniest of species makes a big difference. These smaller, kind of less obvious units of biodiversity are, are kind of hiding in plain sight. You know, we, we want to be able to recognize these new sources of biodiversity before it's too late. Before it's too late. Hundreds of species on Vancouver Island are at risk in some capacity, so I asked Mac what you and I can do to hopefully avoid the being too late marker. Just try and get it as informed about your, your local populations as possible. Sometimes there are actually things you can do in your day-to-day life that might... Um, might impact them. For example, learning about what marmot habitat is uh, on Vancouver Island. And if you're going to be going hiking, you know, it, it's extra important to clean up your garbage, not only, but to, to have as little impact as possible. Really, really, it's just about staying informed as you can. Uh, and I think if, if you're somebody who has the means to and, and is interested in uh, donating to some of these, these uh, conservation foundations, like the Marmot Recovery Foundation, that's, that's amazing. But otherwise, it's, I think, really just a matter of trying to learn what's out there and kind of find out what you can do in your day-to-day life to be a good neighbor to these animals we live with here. If you're interested in learning more about Vancouver Island marmots or in donating to the Marmot Recovery Foundation, you can visit marmots.org. For Shaping BC... I'm Jerry Mayer Judson. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, it's frustrating when you're looking for a job to not know what the salary is, to not see it right there uh, when you're searching online for these jobs that are available. It becomes even more frustrating, say, if you get the job and you think, all right, well, I negotiated a salary. We'll see what that's like. And then you find out that somebody else doing the exact same job as you is making more money. Pay transparency is a huge issue, but starting today, that could you know start to change. All employers in BC as of today have to include pay information on their public job postings. And not only that, if there's a company that has a thousand employees or more, they have to publicly report their gender pay gap. Well, what does all of that mean? How does this impact you? We're going to find out right now from Kelly Patton, who's BC's Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equity. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, let's talk about this issue about having to report uh, your your pay equity. What does that mean? How is the company supposed to do this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, today is an exciting day. We're going to see the first of a staged um, introduction of this. Today, we're going to see BC Public Service and the largest crown corporations with more than 1,000 employees report out their gender pay gaps um, and share that information. And uh, next year, we'll see all employers with over 1,000 employees and then the following year, 300 and so on, down to 50 employees or more. But today, um, it's going to be public service and crowns to really uh, lead the way on reporting out for gender gaps and, and to share that information. So that means that you know, that could be uncomfortable, though, couldn't it? To find out, some employees are going to find out what the other person is making and it might not be the same salary. Yeah, I mean, pay transparency is all about making sure we all have the same information and are working with the facts. 
So anytime we make a, sh- a cultural shift or any any kind of shift like that, and especially around money, um, it can be a little bit uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, this is going to be great for employers to be able to highlight how they're leading the way in, in gender equity. It's going to be great for job seekers, like you mentioned, having that information to make great decisions up front. And anytime that we all are treated equally, we all do better. I'm sure a lot of employees have also heard, you know, from their boss, well, don't talk about how much money you make, or they just, they don't do that with their fellow employees. What does this legislation do about that? Yeah, that's a great question. So earlier this year, we passed the law in May. Um, Earlier this year, that law actually addressed exactly that question. So uh, employees can no longer be punished for sharing their own pay information. Uh, In addition to that, when negotiating uh, your salary for a new position, uh, the law prohibits um, being asked about what your previous salary was. And the reason for all of those different pieces is because we know through research that each one of them contributes or perpetuates the pay gap. Okay, so why do all this then? What kind of a difference do you think this is going to make? Absolutely. So we already know that um, pay discrimination is prohibited by the Human Rights Code. So it's it's already not okay. Um, but BC still has a 17% pay gap. So each one of these steps working together will help uh, reduce the pay gap or stop perpetuating it. But it's not the only thing that we're doing. We're really tackling this across government. So things like making childcare affordable and accessible, um, raising minimum wage, increasing early childhood educator salary, eliminating uh, liquor service wage. All of those things are examples of, of the ways that we're tackling this pay inequity across the board. Is it the problem, do you think, still getting the word out? Because employees have to feel like they can do this, right? Uh, maybe that message is not getting out. Yeah, so, I mean, we're working really hard, and I'm hearing broadly support for this. We're also working with partners um, with with uh, job posting platforms like LinkedIn and Workopolis and Indeed. So as people start to see these things happen more, they'll expect them more. And as people talk about it, as you talk about it, uh, more people will hear about it and they'll know what they can expect. And we're really taking an educational approach right now to make sure that everyone is moving on this together. Everyone understands their rights and responsibilities and will support businesses as needed with making sure that they're they're meeting those requirements. All right, that's an interesting one. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great morning. You too. That is Kelly Padden, who is the Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equity, talking about new rules that come into effect today. So here's the thing. Under this Pay Transparency Act, and this is what employees need to know, your employer or potential employer can no longer ask you about your past earnings. So if you're at the job interview and you want to talk about salary expectations and they say, well, what did you make in your last job? Well, they can't ask you that anymore. They also cannot prohibit you from talking about your salary information with your coworkers. You know, in the past, I know it's very frowned upon. I've certainly heard bosses say that in the past before. Don't share this with anybody else. Don't tell anybody that you got this raise. Uh, It's their way of making sure that people don't know, like maybe the other person is making more than you, but they want you to feel grateful for the 2% that you got, that kind of thing, right? So you're now going to be able to talk about that, share your salary information with coworkers or job applicants, and 
you cannot be penalized for that. So the goal is to even out the pay gap, the discrepancy that we see there. And this is interesting because I think every workplace is a little bit different on that front. Jobs that are now posted publicly will have to show the salary range. Some employers already do this, but an awful lot of them don't, where you have to go through the process to try to find out, is this is this worth it? Like, what is the actual salary range here? That is supposed to start changing. Now, do you think this will help? Will this help to close that pay gap? It means that, oh, okay, you'll get more information when you're applying for this job. And you think, oh, that's interesting. Then so you know that that is what the expected salary range is. Is this all helpful information, do you think, for you for when you're applying for a job? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Pink Shirt Day and CKNW Kids Fund Pledge Day are both coming up fast. And there are some changes this year, good ones, that you need to know about. So let's learn about them right now, shall we? Uh, joining us right now is Sarah Dubois-Phillips, Executive Director of the CKNW Kids Fund, along with Andrea Cadigan, who's the Vice President of Fortis, BC. Good morning to both of you. Good morning to me. Now, Sarah, I'm going to start with you. We've got a lot going on for Pink Shirt Day, and you've got a very special thing that is launching today. What is that? Well, I'm like very, very excited about this. Um, for the first time ever, we have collaborated with an artist to create this year's Pink Shirt Day um, design. And we're launching it on our online store um, now. I mean, uh, it's, it's ready to go. So people can go online and buy their Pink Shirt Day shirt? They can. They can. Um, it's on our Pink Shirt Day website. And do you want me to tell you a little bit about uh, our artist? He's, well, he's quite remarkable. Really? Okay. I'll, we'll get to that. And then we'll get to Andrea. So, yes, tell us about the artist. Well, um, this year we collaborated with Corey Bullpit. Um, he is an internationally recognized Haida artist. And really, it was just such an honor to work with him. Um, you know, given that this is radio, I'm going to try and describe what he has created, but I do encourage everybody to go to our Pink Shirt Day website to, to check it out. Um, Corey is sort of known for his graffiti-influenced high-to-style work. It's sort of a really interesting mix of traditional and, and quite hip. Um, and his shirt design is in his signature graffiti style with Two gesturing hands featuring a traditional Haida human face in the hands. And this hand gesture uh, indicates the welcoming and respect of others. And it serves as a really friendly greeting, which is used throughout Coast Salish communities. Sarah, I so, have to say, I just went online, pinkshirtday.ca, saw it right away. It is so cool. I love this oh, shirt. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think, Simi, you know better than anyone that you know, our Pink Shirt Day campaign, we really try and recognize the importance of unity, inclusivity, and diversity of all people. And I feel like this shirt really reflects those values. And given really what is going on in the world currently, no kidding. I think it's a really beautiful message. And I really hope that it's going to resonate with um, a wide demographic. I hope so, too. People should check it out, pinkshirtday.ca, which is why it's also so wonderful that Fortis BC is also back supporting Pink Shirt Day. Andrea, that is so great. Why is this so important to Fortis? Well, we're so proud to be the presenting sponsor for CKNW Kids Fund Pink Shirt Day 2024. We're passionate about supporting people and organizations who put their energy into grassroots initiatives like Pink Shirt Day that make a positive difference to the well-being of British Columbians. 
you know, we know that bullying and harassment is not only a problem in schools, homes, and online, but it's also a problem in many workplaces. And with one of our key values being safety, safety that goes beyond performing the job, but also a workplace that's free from bullying and harassment, um, this is important to us, and, and we're so excited to share the launch of this new Pink Shirt Day. Andrea, does, does something like Pink Shirt Day allow your employees, do you think, to also talk about this, whereas otherwise they may not feel comfortable doing it? Absolutely. You know, it takes courage to share negative experiences and to stand up for what's right. And bringing awareness to issues by celebrating Pink Shirt Day can really open up the conversation where we can all learn and be better, not only on Pink Shirt Day, but every day. Right. And you do a lot, Fortis does a lot of investment into the community, don't they? Absolutely. You know, we have 2,600 employees across the province, and we're really fortunate to be part of the communities we serve. So we're passionate about supporting our people, and and we're going to encourage everyone to support this initiative by purchasing a shirt and raise awareness and contribute to the funding of anti-bullying programs right across British Columbia. Oh, it makes such a difference there. And great shirt to wear this year. Andrea, have you got yours already? Are you looking forward to getting yours? Not just yet. I'm really excited to get the shirt and certainly promote it across the company and across the community. Um, the design sounds amazing, and I can't wait to wear it myself. Me neither. I know. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate that. Well, on behalf of Fortis BC, thank you for having me. Well, that's Andrea Cadigan, Vice President of Fortis BC, and Sarah Dubois Phillips. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Simi. Thank you. And thank you, Andrea. We're thrilled to be working with Fortis BC. We're really excited for this campaign. Thank you. Love it. That's Sarah Dubois Phillips, Executive Director of the CKNW Kids Fund. You should check out this new shirt that they have this year for Pink Shirt Day, too. It's pinkshirtday.ca. Fortis, the presenting sponsor of Pink Shirt Day for 2024. Love to have everybody back on board. Great conversations to have, as Andrea pointed out from Fortis there, even in your workplace. Great conversation, especially in your workplace to have because we know bullying takes all forms not just for kids but for adults too right this is mornings with simi will absolutely not be any other carve outs or suspensions of the price on pollution this is designed to phase out home heating oil the way we made a decision to phase out coal No more carve-outs. Also, that doesn't make any sense what he just said there. How is giving a break on the price of home heating oil designed to stop the use of home heating oil and phasing it out? That doesn't make any sense. But no more carve-outs. That is the word from the Trudeau government after surprising everyone by exempting home heating oil in certain parts of Canada from the carbon tax for three years, a move that caught BC in particular by surprise. The government here received no notice, and they are not happy about that. And overall, it is just a decision that makes no policy sense. Like, why home heating oil and not natural gas? Why just certain provinces? Why do this and undermine the carbon tax? And now, of course, the provinces who were not included are under pressure to provide the same benefits to their residents. It is a mess to put it mildly. It's turned into now provincial politics as well, with BC United saying they would alter the carbon tax. You've got the BC Conservatives saying they'd get rid of the carbon tax. So let's talk about what the BC NDP government is prepared to do. Josie Osborne joins us now, BC's Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, and thanks for having me on. This sounds like it has been quite the mess. Like, when did when did the government first learn that the federal government was going to do this? 
Well, we learned just hours before they made their announcement. And, of course, it was incredibly disappointing. And as you say, it's uh, created a lot of turmoil, a lot of focus on the carbon tax. But it hasn't deterred us from our strong focus on taking action on climate and helping British Columbians uh, with affordability issues. Okay, so if that's the case, then is there anything coming for BC residents? Like, will your government then say we also have to help residents? Well, you're right. The the decision that the federal government took, a rash decision to help people in Atlantic Canada, we want to see the same kinds of benefits here in British Columbia. And one of the things we've been pushing the federal government on really hard is to come to the table with us to increase the amount of rebates and support that British Columbians need to make the switch from home heating oil to fuel pumps, for example. So we expect the federal government to come and work with us quickly, uh, increase those rebates, get them out to people, because that's the way to make life more affordable for British Columbians over the long haul, as well as reducing our emissions, something we hear every single day from people that they want to do. Right, but Minister Osborne, we've heard the Prime Minister say, and the Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, say, no more carve-outs. So does that mean they're, they're going to come to the table? Because it doesn't sound like it. Well, we want them to come to the table to support people to make that switch. So this is about providing the rebates and the support to make it more affordable to make a switch into heat pumps. We're seeing people adopt heat pumps across British Columbia's communities at record rates. We need to do more because we know we need to take strong action on climate. Have you gotten any response, though, from the Liberal government, from your counterparts there in Ottawa when it comes to expressing dissatisfaction on this? Well, we'll uh, we've made our views very clear. And we'll be speaking very soon to, uh, I'll be speaking very soon to my counterpart. And again, putting the pressure on there to, to come to the table and, and help us and, and work with us to support people here in BC. Are there meetings set up? What does that look like? Well, that, that looks like conversations and meetings, yes. And so I, I don't have a, a firm date or time to tell you. I can tell you it's going to take place this week, though. But in the meantime, that doesn't stop us from continuing to take action to support people. We know that global inflation, we know that high interest rates are really squeezing household budgets in B.C. It's not just in our energy bills, but it's across the board. And so that's why we continue to stay focused on B.C. families by, uh, by in decreasing childcare rates, for example. We're reducing ICBC rates. But we take the carbon tax that we collect, and that goes back to people. So it goes back to people in the form of the Climate Action Tax Credit, something that helps families, helps individuals, and we're going to continue to do that work. Okay, so what, first of all, what will your message be then in those meetings that you expect to have with the federal government or calls with them? What will you say to them? Well, we'll be letting them know that British Columbia has still the strongest action plan, uh, climate action plan on the continent, that we're going to continue to lead the way to do this, that we, can not, we don't need an either-or situation here. This is about taking action on climate as well as supporting British Columbians. We want the federal government to be at the table with us to provide those heat pump rebates to British Columbians to get them off of home heating oil so that they can switch into low-cost, clean electricity to heat their homes. Okay, so you're going to say we want that rebate for the, for the heat pumps. That's right. We're going to continue to work with them on that. The, the federal government's been a partner with us at, at other tables. We expect to see the same kind of rebates and services they want to provide to Atlantic Canadians to our British Columbian families here. This sounds like it's ramping up to be now a, a big issue for the next year. Yesterday, we heard BC United saying they would be tinkering with the carbon tax, you know, as definitely if they were able to form government. We heard BC Conservatives saying they'd get rid of it. Does it concern you now that all of a sudden this what seemed like a settled thing is now very much back in play? 
Well, once again, you know, we heard Kevin Falcon's plan yesterday. The government, the federal government made a hasty plan and Kevin Falcon's devised overnight a plan as well. But his approach is the wrong approach. It's not the way to help British Columbians with costs. And I think we just look next door to the province of Alberta to see what happened there when they cut gas taxes. It ended up subsidizing oil companies. That's not what we need to do here. The plan that's been put forward by the BC United is a plan that's going to cost $5 billion. Where's the money going to come from? We're going to stay focused on supporting British Columbians to take strong action on climate, making life more affordable here, doing the things that we know British Columbians want this government to do, and we're going to stay focused on that. If the federal government tells you, no, there are no rebates coming for BC, will your government consider doing it yourselves? Well, we already do. So there are already up to $6,000 available through BC Hydro and through the Clean BC programs to support people. The federal government has a uh, modest fuel, uh, fuel pump a heat pump rebate as well, but we want to do more. We know we need to take more action and we're going to continue to press the federal government to do that. Okay. And what about the break on home heating oil? Will you advocate for the same for natural gas? No, we're going to continue to focus on helping people make that switch from fossil fuels to clean electricity. Once again, heat pumps are the way that we're doing that. It shows, you know, the benefit of a heat pump too is that we see cooling opportunities in the summer as well as heating in the winter. This makes home living more affordable, more livable for people. It's what we know British Columbians want to see and do. It's the action that we need to take. And we're going to stay focused on making that change. It's a strong plank of our climate action plan. We're going to continue with our electric vehicle rebates. We're going to continue helping people make a switch into cleaner transportation. And we're going to stay focused on doing that in a way that is affordable for British Columbians. Okay, so then you don't anticipate any other changes then in the way the carbon tax is set up here in B.C.? We're going to stay focused on making sure that the vast majority of carbon tax comes back to people. It comes back to people in the form of the Climate Action Tax Credit. We invest in industry and in businesses to help reduce emissions. That's what British Columbia needs to do and to help global emissions, and we're going to stay focused on that. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. That's Josie Osborne, BC's Minister of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation. Uh, provincial government not happy with what the federal Liberal government has done over the past week. So they have some meetings this week, as you heard the minister say. And I think now we have to wait and see what happens as a result of those meetings. They're going to express their dissatisfaction, their strong dissatisfaction with what the federal Liberals have done here. And that is provide a break to home heating oil residents in certain parts of the country, not here in BC. And the fact that you know they're not going to be, they're going to be exempt now from the carbon tax doesn't make any sense, right? Because obviously uh, natural gas burns cleaner than home heating oil. So why not the break on natural gas versus home heating oil? Doesn't make any sense. And now, of course, it's turned into a provincial political football too. So uh, let's wait and see what the federal government says on that. Will they feel the pressure from BC? I mean, if they were doing this as a way to grab votes in Atlantic Canada or protect their votes, it just boggles my mind that they're not concerned about BC. It's a three-way tie in the polling race right now, uh, federally, here in BC. They should worry about their seats here in British Columbia too, not just Atlantic Canada with dumb moves like this.